This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, April 7th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. For a long time, antitrust enforcers placed consumer welfare as the primary consideration for judging a business action. And if that standard goes away, what replaces it? Duke economist Michael Munger and I discussed some of the difficulties of trying to replace the consumer welfare standard in antitrust action. The difficulty is that the sort of progressives that now have the Federal Trade Commission and the Justice Department, their personnel occupy the uh, Federal Trade Commission and the Justice Department, they've become originalists. They have discovered the original intent of the Sherman Act. And it turns out, if you look at the content of a lot of the legislative debate, it's clear that the Sherman Act was passed to manipulate the industrial structure for all sorts of a dog's breakfast of different purposes. So uh, we want to help labor. We want to help small competitors. We want to help small farmers against these large railroads. uh, We want to help consumers. But it turns out that if you have all those different goals, you don't really have any. What you have is a rent-seeking contest, and unsurprisingly, a system that's designed to protect the powerful will not protect the weak. Let's say they're correct, and the Sherman Act is meant to uh, break up the big boys and punish the big boys for bigness. Is Is that the conclusion, that you're big and therefore suspect? The Sherman Act has two clauses. One would appear to say that behavior is the primary problem. So contracts and restraint of trade, price fixing, uh, the attempt to use mergers and acquisitions just for the sake of monopolizing a market. And the market has to be defined in a specific enough way that there's entries not possible and there's no good substitutes. So if all of those things are true, that's pretty standard uh, antitrust policy. The second clause has more to do with size alone. And it would appear to say that monopolies are illegal. Now, that can't literally be true because there are many different monopolies that are created by state action. Uh, patents, copyrights, there's all sorts of things that th- th- these they can't be per se illegal. So the big difficulty is not so much the Sherman Act, which I think if you, if you look at the plain wording of the Sherman Act, throw out for a moment. I mean, it's sometimes said that looking at legislative history is like going into a crowded bar and looking for friends because a bunch of senators said a bunch of different things. And of course, in some crowded bar, you'll be able to find some friend that says what you want. But that doesn't mean that was the legislative intent. So I I think looking at what was said in uh, legislative histories is not very informative. If you look at the, the plain meaning of the words in the Sherman Act, then behavior that was in restraint of trade and bigness alone if it was for the purpose of monopolizing and raising price and restricting output, which is that's what harms consumers. So the the argument is it prevents innovation and it uh, raises price. So what's interesting is that most of the bigness that we see, for example, Walmart, the boogeyman for many folks on the left, um, the price just keeps going down. The price goes lower and lower so that the things that Walmart is doing are driving prices lower. So I often ask my colleagues at Duke, many of whom are very upset about Walmart. Well, if you go into Walmart on December 23rd, do you see any people like you? No, you see poor people buying Christmas presents for their children. And so the the effect of these monopolies has actually been to create supply chains that reduce price and help poor people. They help consumers. Right. I believe once upon a time, Jason Furman estimated that the average family 
uh, was benefited something like $3,000 by the existence of Walmart. And what the left now wants to do is, they might even concede that, but they would say, look at all the other harms that this standard ignores. And the other harms would include the mom and pop shop that can't possibly compete because they don't have these advantages on supply chain. So that means that it's it's unfair because they can't compete. And the people who would have worked in those mom and pop shops, they don't have the jobs that they would have. So we have to protect competitors and we have to protect specific jobs. And somehow we're supposed to know we have we have information. I don't know where it comes from about which of those competitors should survive. And we will either subsidize them or protect them in some way or we will break up Walmart. And we will accept the fact that the result is much higher prices because there are other social benefits. So uh, if I understand correctly, the general view that the consumer welfare standard is insufficient uh, is animating would-be antitrust regulators in the near term? And it has since 1978. They were never satisfied with it. So the revolution that followed publications by Robert Bork and a number of the Chicago law professors who led the law and economics revolution, the interesting thing about This has been latent all that time because the concern is, how are we going to protect labor? How are we going to protect uh, competitors? What they would like is for consumers to have many choices. And if I have many choices, all of which are of lower quality and higher price, it's not clear that that benefits me. So the, 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 what the left seems to want now, and specifically Lena Khan's effort teach out, there's a number of, uh, firebrands of uh, changing antitrust, they would like to use the antitrust laws as a bludgeon to be able to manage the way that industrial structure works. And the, there's, a, but there, there's a number of acts, uh, Davis-Bacon Act, Robinson-Patman, that originally were actually used against labor, that is unions were contracts in restraint of trade. And no, we've we've come the Wagner Act, we've 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 changed that a bit. But there's many contracts that were per se illegal, which were and that uh, that's a bunch of jargon. What it means is there are certain activities that the if the if a firm tried to use them, they were a violation of the law, regardless of whether this firm could show that it benefited consumers to have that contract provision. So if I want to sell my product in a really high quality setting and I want my uh, salespeople to be well informed, because a big problem that we have is people go into a, uh, a store, they look at the product and then they go home and buy it on the Internet. I do that. We all do it. But suppose that you would like to have someone who is trained and can answer questions. Well, what that means is you and probably I would go to the place where the person is trained and answer questions, and then we would go buy it from an internet source that'll sell it at a much lower price. That's just the way this works. There's a solution, and it's called resale price maintenance. The company says the only people who can sell our products are those who sell it at a price at least this high, and they have to have workers that are trained. No other place can sell it. So it's a licensing agreement that is per se illegal under the new interpretation of the antitrust laws. That is, it is a violation, even if you can show it's beneficial. And that actually was the nature of the Sylvania case in 1978, where the Supreme Court said, actually, that makes a lot of sense. And if, if you're a company that sells your product that way and people don't want to buy it, 
you'll go bankrupt. We have an industrial plan. It's called profit and loss. Profit and loss is the signal about whether an activity is socially beneficial or not. But if you think that social benefits are better measured by bureaucrats than they are by consumers, that's going to be unacceptable. Do you think uh, Lena Khan, among others, uh, in, in the Federal Trade Commission and uh, other federal regulators who, who have purview over trust uh, issues, would say that, look, what we're trying to get to is the neoclassical model of lots and lots of competitors, none of which have some direct measurable control over price. They absolutely are, and that's an excellent point. So no one who likes markets say they are a neoliberal. Neoliberal is an epithet that's used by outsiders. Against everyone. Against everyone who likes markets. <laughs> and that model, the neoclassical model, where we, we need many, many atomistic participants who are all price takers, that's by people that's used by people who actually hate firms and profits. There, there, no company should act that way. That, that is a misrepresentation of the way that markets should work. So the, the, the neoclassical model is a mathematical blackboard model. It, it's not a useful way of thinking about markets. The difficulty is that we are now, and the reason that I would credit a lot of people on the left, they're not just shrieking uh, that the sky is falling. There is a problem. And the problem is that platforms, by their nature, become really, really large if they're successful. So if you have several companies, so it, the, an example that I often use is suppose, Caleb, that you came up with, and this is possible, you're a creative guy. Suppose you came up with a new ride share app and you wrote the code. I mean, this one does. And so th this is now available to be put on phones and it's way better than Uber. And you wait for the profits to roll in, except almost no one uses it. Because Uber has something that's really a big advantage. It has an inventory of reviews of drivers and an inventory of reviews of riders. By its nature, those things reduce the transactions cost in participating in this person-to-person -person transaction. So I, when I write about platforms, I define them as a setting, and it can be a virtual setting, and now it mostly is a virtual setting, where Two individuals, one who has something to sell and one who wants to buy something, find each other. So what platforms do is reduce the transactions cost of two individuals finding each other for a mutually beneficial transaction or exchange. And if you can solve that problem, you have this identity that doesn't port over into something else. If I have a reputation on Uber, I can't use it on Airbnb. Uber owns it. And so platforms become enormous. And it's the data that those platforms have. It's the data that Facebook has. It's the, da the data that Google has that, is, that, that, that makes them so large and so powerful. I made use of my Uber reputation score when I was in Vietnam trying to get a car. So it is portable within that platform. And that if, if, if you'd had to use a different company, it would have been difficult. So the fact that in Uber, you can go anywhere and you have this portable reputation and can use it somewhere else. The difficulty is that this, this information that I'm throwing off is then of value to the company. And so the problem, that, and this may surprise you, the problem that I think is that we should now go back and read Michel Foucault. And the reason is that Foucault became fascinated 
by the problem of panopticon. Because Jeremy Bentham had talked about that this, this is, he imagined a sort of prison where a, a relatively small number of observers behind darkened glass in a central core could look out and then all around them were these cells, but the cells had windows on both sides. So I could see in and on the outside was sunlight. So I could observe all of the people in the entire prison. Three or four people could, in principle, observe everyone in the entire prison. And so everyone was always unaware if they were being observed or not. Well, we have now recreated Foucault's worry of Panopticon because the data that we produce on Google and Facebook now mean that we're always, in principle, at least possibly under observation. But the solution is not antitrust. So I want to credit the left with having identified an actual problem. And the problem is that antitrust will actually make things much worse by balkanizing this. What we need to do is to have a property rights change so we actually own our own data. And the, the having large platforms makes that more likely because we're actually able to do it at relatively low cost. Is the argument from uh, federal regulators right now that uh, platforms are themselves monopolies and there's some sort of magic size uh, at which they become monopolies, or is it all the way down? That's that. That's the that's the perfect question to ask. And it now we're back to the neoclassical model. They have, for some reason, a naive, almost childlike faith in the ability of standard competition. And the fact is that standard competition doesn't solve the transactions cost problem that explained the existence of platforms in the first place. This is a different kind of marketplace. Platforms are a setting where individuals find each other. Uber does not sell taxi rights. Uber sells information about local buyers and sellers. And so by break, breaking them up, you would not have been able to use it in Vietnam. There, there, maybe there's just one in each country. So the 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 notion of competition is the wrong way to think of how to discipline um, platforms. So usually the, the the neoclassical model says that competition is a means of disciplining the power and greed of large companies because they can't charge too high a price because somebody else will charge a lower price. They have to offer good products because somebody else will offer a better product. So you're competing on multiple margins, and that that limits the ability of even relatively large companies to abuse consumers. And so competition is the the, the key. Well, competition by definition won't work with platforms because they want to be large. The information that they have means they want to be large. There's an alternative way that we might think about, in effect, these things are natural monopolies. So again, if we go with the neoclassical model, it's more like an electric company. Now that would suggest that we could regulate them like utilities. And in fact, there are people on the left that use the utility model, not the antitrust model, as a sort of metaphorical understanding of the way to approach the regulatory problem. I, I think treating it like a utility would just ensure that Facebook would become completely invulnerable to any kind of competition. Because it is the nature of that kind of regulation, like Ma Bell. So we, we wanted to protect consumers against the, the rapacious monopoly of the telephone. And so we institutionalized it so it was literally impossible for any other company until finally MCI was allowed to compete a little bit on long-distance telephones. And then not, not too long. It, it's hard to tell students now 
I used to wait until after 11 p.m. to make phone calls within the United States because it was much cheaper. We don't think about long distance even being a thing anymore. A per minute charge. A substantial per minute charge, and it was different at different times of the day. So this enormous cumbersome regulatory structure that was a result of treating it like a utility. So that's also not the answer. So the, in a way, what I'm saying is not very helpful. I'm arguing there's two ways not to think about this. One is antitrust and the other is utility. Those, are, those will make it worse, not better. Well, and, and I imagine uh, platforms as well as any other large participant in the marketplace that makes use of networks to get customers uh, also lacks a whole lot of knowledge about where things are headed. And, you know, if Amazon is a model for a lot of those companies, the target has to be throw a hell of a lot of benefits at the consumer as much as you can. And do it in new and innovative ways. So people don't remember Amazon was a book company, but it turned out that what Amazon was selling was reductions in transactions cost. And so the it generalized the model that Amazon used to sell stuff. It worked fine for books because they could keep an inventory and they could deliver it. They had a way of returning it. You had a way of searching. And so now instead of even a large bookstore, Barnes & Noble, which Barnes & Noble used to be the bad guy because the mom and pop bookstore couldn't compete. And then Barnes & Noble became this paragon of democratic function. It was a place where we could go and have coffee and there were real books and these bastards at Amazon, they're killing the Barnes & Noble. This is terrible. Well, what, what, what Amazon did was sell reductions in transactions cost. And so it seems to me that there is going to be a competition and it's going to be a battle of the titans. So Amazon is going to have to face competition from Uber because Uber right now sells delivery for the most part of human beings. But Uber can deliver anything. The genius thing about Uber is it could deliver anything. So Uber and Amazon have almost exactly the same model. The difference is that Uber is it turns out, designed for a rental market where I could deliver something and pick it up at really low cost. So Amazon's not. Amazon is set up to deliver things for ownership. So to the extent that the sharing economy and platforms on the sharing economy are going to become more important, Uber and Amazon are going to be the two great competitors, unless we regulate them like utilities and we give them own, each their own private monopoly. And then forever, there will be no more innovation. I want them to kill each other and some third company that we don't even know about yet within five years will will come then things I cannot possibly imagine. One of my rules is that anything that a professor can think of was already done by an entrepreneur five years ago. So the fact that I don't know what the new competitor to Amazon and Uber is going to be, I'm untroubled by that because yep. someone's thinking about it. For so long, Uber's model was we're going to take all this venture capital and we're going to throw it at the people who want to ride around in a city. And that for the most part, that was their, their the model was take all the venture capital and throw it immediately at the benefit of to the benefit of consumers. And when th we're going to lose a lot of money, um, it harmed some taxis, but taxis were probably going to be on the way out anyway. What what I think is interesting about what Uber has actually managed to accomplish is well. Amazon makes a substantial amount of its profits from Amazon Web Services. So I can set up my own website on Amazon Web Services, and it looks like a standalone website, but in fact, 
Amazon's operating in the background. I think Uber is going to move more and more in that direction. And once that starts to happen, these are going to be two really giant platforms that are going to organize competition within the platform among different companies, different sellers, different renters. Because I can rent from all sorts of different food companies. Uber Eats means that now a lot of restaurants compete with each other for my dollar within a city. And they would not have been competitive before. Some of them were pretty far away. There were different cuisines. I can now look at a single uh, set of menus, so a sort of meta menu, and I can choose what I'm going to have for dinner that night. And it'll be there in half an hour because Uber will deliver it. Given your experience at the Federal Trade Commission, how likely is it that all of the wonderful benefits of a freewheeling Wild West uh, competition uh, will carry the day. It takes a really long time for us to recognize that bureaucrats lack both the information and incentives to carry out the functions we want to assign them, because it seems like someone should be in charge. And particularly in this sort of chaotic setting, I think it's politically very popular to say that someone should be in charge. So nobody remembers the Bell telephone example. That just seems like it, people who have phones now. Undergrads they, don't. They, 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 that, <laughs> was that the Eisenhower administration? <laughs> Maybe Garfield? I, I don't remember. So the we have lost touch with the set of examples that led us to think that not only not new regulation, but actual deregulation was beneficial. So I try to tell, I ask my students, which U.S. administration did the most for deregulation? And the answer is actually the Carter administration. So the, the four-year Carter administration started the deregulation of many industries, and we're still reaping the benefits of those. The, yeah, to the, to the tune of like a half point of GDP every year. Right, and it accumulates. Right, that's, that's a good point. Um, the, I flew today from Raleigh to Las Vegas, the, the plane was full. If you look at the number of people who are not very wealthy, who now just routinely fly, that was not possible in the 1970s. It was a rich person's game. But you could get a really nice meal on the plane. In effect, the, the fact that there was non-price competition because price competition was limited, the, the, the regulators said that you could not cut your price below a certain level because we have to protect these airlines. And so, yeah, you could get a sandwich that had a sirloin steak. It was the equivalent of a $40 meal because they were going to compete on a different dimension. The seats were bigger. Uh, the the attendants were, they had a lot more time for you. Um, and that would still be possible if anybody wanted to pay for it. But the airline service now probably has gotten worse. It's just available to a lot more people. So the the thing that happens over time is that Cell phones were the size of bricks, and they were very expensive, and now poor people have them. We just assume that this is the process that will always happen. It won't unless you remove the regulatory fetters that make it possible. It, the, I have a lot of friends on the left who I think it took me a long time to realize this. The problem is not so much that they don't believe in markets. It's that they believe in market, that they believe that markets are just bulletproof. There's nothing we can do that will stop this kind of progress. And we can fiddle with it. We can change incentives. That's not true. They're actually relatively fragile. So I worry that this 
new confidence. And honestly, a lot of it's on the right. The national conservatives, there's a lot of people on the right who are every bit as confident as Lena Khan that if they had control of the economy, whatever that even means, that they could do the Lord's work. They could they could make this work much better. They, they would do something different from what's on the left, but everyone seems to agree that somebody needs to be in charge and we will manage the economy to the benefit of all because we have the information and the people doing it have the proper incentives to care about everyone. Yeah, the big the big my big fear is that left and right will find a regulation they agree on in this area. Having private companies be able to decide what information they will carry and whether something is news or truth or not just seems like that's way too much to entrust the private sector. The government should be in charge of that because the government has such a good record of carrying out those functions well. Said no sensible being transparent. The last several administrations have made claims about transparency uh, that we were going to, they were going to, the, the Obama administration was going to protect whistleblowers. It, it, it just doesn't happen. The incentives and the information that is possessed by bureaucrats is not likely to, to bring that into, into being. So it is frustrating. I put something up as a joke the other day on Facebook and I was admonished by Big Brother Facebook saying that this is actually contentious and the photo that you put up lacks context. Okay, it's a private company. I can go do something else. Now, you can say there's not many other platforms that are like Facebook. That's true. There's a big benefit for all of us having the same place that we can put our cat videos and share them easily. And I'm willing for Facebook to decide what it thinks is truth because it's a private company. So there's two really bad choices. One is that Facebook gets to decide what it thinks is true and to limit what can be said on its platform. An even worse thing would be for the government to do that instead. So I would prefer Facebook does it because I can always go somewhere. I can escape Facebook. Michael Munger is an economist at Duke University. We spoke earlier this week. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.